humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Mahesh Kunduru, Chief Executive Officer of Procep. Procep is a proprietary engineering solutions firm to the broader industrial market. Mahesh, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. If you would, please share with me and the audience a little bit more about your background and a little bit more about who is Procep. Happy to do that, Joe. First, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. My name is Mahesh Kunduru. I'm the CEO for Procep. A little bit about Procep. Uh, Procep is a proprietary engineering solutions firm for the broader industry industrial segment. I'll talk to you a little bit about our products down the line. Uh, Quickly, intro about myself. I, in my previous life, had a technical degree all the way up to a PhD in chemical engineering. And for the last eight years, I've been at Procep uh, trying to help advance the company's mission statement uh, and vision. A little bit about the Procep products. So we have two main product lines. Uh, the first product line is what we call the high efficiency mixers. And the second product line is essentially water treatment. The high efficiency mixers are simply stated valve like mechanical devices, which, by virtue of their internal design, can help two fluids mix in a much more efficient manner than what's out there on the market. And we can talk about several applications, uh, I guess, down the line here on the podcast. On the water treatment side, uh, we have several products. The flagship product is called Ozorb. And Ozorb essentially is a, we think, a game-changing technology that helps remove, hard to remove hydrocarbon contaminants from water. And it allows you to get almost to zero discharge, which is a technical term for almost no contaminants. Okay, I'll stop there. That's the introduction about myself and Procep. Thank you, Mahesh, for that introduction. Now, we're focused today on on those ideas, separation really of separation of those contaminants from water and and part of that is that mixing process. So really my my experience to try and put it in perspective for for maybe other audience members, my experience with separation and mixing is kind of limited to salad dressing. <laughs> in my salad dressings, you've got the oil, it rises to the top. And if I want 
more than just olive oil on my salad. I have to shake it up really good and then pour it out really quickly before it separates again. (laughs) I have a feeling that it's a little bit more sophisticated in oil and gas and really the high efficiency mixers that 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 your your team provides. Can you explain more more precisely what is that separation process in the oil and gas production stream? <laughs> Joe, that's a great example that you've given. Yeah, happy to do that. The separation processes that we oversee in the energy industry are a little bit more complicated than your salad dressing, but the basic scientific principles uh, remain the same. So let me try to attempt to explain where the separation processes occur in the typical upstream oil and gas industry. And based on that, hopefully I can give your audience an overview of where our contribution comes in and how uh, we believe you offer game-changing technology. So if you think about it, uh, when the fluid comes out of the ground, you know, it's got you know several things in it, right? So it's got oil, it's got gas, it's got water, it's got sand, it's got a lot of dirty stuff as well. Uh, so among the things that uh, people do, especially in the separation part of this process is if you, if you take a clean white sheet, just go to the right of the top, sorry, go to the middle left of the sheet. And that's where, let's say, all your fluid comes in together. And that part is typically a what's called a three-phase separator, which is just a very crude form of separating uh, this material, this goo that comes out of the ground into its phases. So... If you think about, again, it will be in the middle left of your page. Uh, There's a rough separation that occurs there, and oil goes from left to right from the middle middle of your page, from the left to the right. To the top of this little box goes natural gas, and then from the top to the left is where the gas is processed. And then come back to the middle and then go uh, to the bottom, that's where your water gets separated from left to right. So essentially, and I'm, I'm being a, a little bit uh, generic there. I mean, obviously, there's more complexity there in order to simplify for your audience. Think of it as if you take a page, uh, top is gas separation, middle is just a three-phase separation where it becomes oil and left to right is oil and the bottom is water. And where we come in is we have these mixing devices that go into each one of these trains. There's a gas train, there's an oil train, there's a water train as they go from left to right. And let's just go to the oil train. People inject chemicals. Uh, one chemical that people inject is called a demulsifier. It essentially does the opposite of emulsification. It helps you separate uh, uh, oil from contaminants you don't need. And people inject these emulsifiers through a a little uh, hole in the top, and then it mixes with the oil so that it actually uh, uh, helps separate the oil into clean oil and and the dirt that you don't need. Uh, Further down the line on the oil train, after the demulsifier is added, sometimes uh, 
some processes add clean water to remove salt from the oil. And you, for water injection, people use some devices, including mixers. So that's on the oil side. On the gas side, uh, gas nat- has natural gas has contaminants, including carbon dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, water. All of them need to be removed. In order to remove each one of those uh, undesirables, you inject chemicals. And whenever you inject a chemical, you need a device to do that. That's where our mixers come in. And finally, to the bottom of your page for water treatment, uh, there is some chemical injection happening, but water treatment is essentially broken down into three stages, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And each one of those stages, there's a certain amount of contaminant that is removed. Uh, Primary and secondary remove bulk of the contaminants. And the tertiary, which is the very end, removes the hard to remove the final parts, a few parts per million, PPM for short. And our Ozor product comes in at the tertiary stage where you have to really work hard to remove those really stubborn, uh, hard to remove contaminants before you dispose of them to the water. Uh, hopefully uh, that was a reasonably clear picture of where mixers and water treatment come into play. Yes, yes, that is very helpful to understand. So just to make sure I'm I'm on the right page, we've got that separator at the beginning where you've got gas at the top, oil ends up in the middle, and you've got water at the bottom. But it's not just those three. We send those down individual lines, and there's still, for lack of a better term, trash in those lines with your desired product, that being gas, oil, or water. And the mixing, the reason we're adding in chemicals is to actually purify those final those final products we want. Is that correct? That's correct. Great uh, observation, and uh, you, you picked it up quite well. Okay. So, so... I guess the the idea then we're mixing in the chemicals to to pull out these impurities or this this trash. What is how and it's it's done with basically what I heard from you was that we just kind of drop it in in through an extra valve at some point in the in that line. Is that is that kind of the current state of the industry? How how I guess what I'm asking is how are chemicals currently added into these different production streams to pull out those impurities? Yeah, good question, Joe. So different entities and in different processes use different devices to inject these chemicals. And I don't want to generalize or simplify too much, uh, but it probably helpful for me to give you an example. Uh, there is something called an injection quill that's used often, where if you, if you think of a big pipe uh, where uh, your fluid is flowing from, let's say, left to right, on the top of the pipe, there's usually a little hole that's drilled in, and people in, put in like a quill, which is almost like a pointy device that has some tiny holes to it through which a chemical is injected. And the goal is that you have to have these uh, injected chemicals to be a very small droplet so that you can mix quickly into these things. Uh, 
but traditionally people have used quills and, and sometimes some uh, items called atomizers. And these are just kind of what I think are crude devices that you put in and you know, there's holes in them and then they inject uh, the secondary chemical. Um, now, what happens when you use these devices is that uh, the amount of chemical being used is not being injected efficiently. You know, uh, oftentimes it drops to the bottom of the pipe or uh, the flow through it is not very well controlled. So there is a lot of inefficiency that happens. So where we come in is our mixer is very intricately designed um, and, and we have several designs for it, but just one design, which is called our uh, AIM design. What it does is it it basically lets the secondary fluid, which is this chemical, uh, f- flow through a very well-designed path. And it's, it flows through this path and actually uses the momentum of the f- primary fluid that's uh, flowing from left to right in the pipe to very elegantly uh, take that momentum and transfer it and distribute this liquid into very, very fine droplets that allows you to mix or achieve the mixing you need in a very short distance and at high efficiency. Is that helpful? Yes, that is, that's very helpful. And that is, it is almost ingenious to think about utilizing the energy that is within the, in the primary fluid and using that momentum to aid in the mixing. Because as you were talking, I was going back to my salad dressing yeah. and I was thinking if I was adding, adding say three drops of olive oil and then adding one drop of my vinegar, trying to do that for an entire salad is a very slow, very tedious process. And naturally you would think, well, the reason we shake it is to agitate it and to mix it all up quickly and efficiently, but you can't exactly shake a pipe. <laughs> except that it's almost like that is what you guys are doing with with taking that momentum and creating that to redistribute the chemical. Exactly right. Great great analogy again. You you uh, have a very unique way of uh, communicating complicated scientific <laughs> principle into everyday uh, activity that we do. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm nerding out a little bit. So <laughs> but it it is it's fun to think about. Yeah. So we mix to pull out the impurities and really the the key to to being efficient at that is producing better mixing. And that's what what you guys are working on with with this momentum and with this new design. It I guess I'd, I'd like to get into some numbers. Mm-hmm. What What is the average, just some type of numbers, average of how much chemical you need in order to process some oil? And then with your high efficiency mixing, how does that, how does that amount of chemical need drop? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Again, like we are in the business of, quantifying the value we add to a client. So I think it's good to get uh, uh, to the numbers. So again, the amount of, uh, let me give you two examples. One is the amount of ke- uh, one particular chemical that's used. And then second example would be the amount of water that's used. Uh, 
So uh, in terms of the chemical that's used, it really depends uh, on the particular specification of the fuel you're treating. Uh, and I have an example of, uh, of uh, a real example, a real world example of oil we've treated it with a pretty large national oil company. And at this particular processing center, they were flowing about 100,000 barrels of oil per day through the pipe, right? That's a pretty, pretty large flow. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a chemical called the demulsifier is injected. And for this particular application, the NOC was injecting 0.13% of demulsifier. So for about 100,000 barrels of oil per day, if my math is correct, that's about 130 gallons per day of this chemical. And just to say the average price of this chemical is about $20 per gallon. So using our mixers, we promise savings of between 25 to 40% of chemical usage. So you can, you can appreciate the, the dollar value uh, that we can save uh, just simply by using our mixers. And in one recent installation we did for the client, and the client came back and told us just by putting one of our mixers, they were able to save about $2 million of chemicals per year, which, which is quite substantial. Um, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And again, that's just one quick example, but and that's just one site. Um, uh, let me talk about the example of water. So as I mentioned to you, if you go further along on the oil separating train, you can save water as well because water is injected to remove salt from oil. So uh, in, in one application, let's say you're flowing 100,000 barrels of oil per day. You In this particular case, the client were using about 2,000 gallons per day of water. And we typically say we save about 25% of fresh water. So that's about 50,000 gallons per day. Sorry, right, 50 gallons per day of water that's being injected. And we would save about 18,000 gallons per year just on one site. And if we extrapolate that to this one particular NOC, we've shown that over a year they could save 700 million gallons of water by using our mixers in their entire portfolio. Um, so if you want a comparison and maybe I'll I'll try to uh, uh, I'll try to uh, channel some of your everyday usage <laughs> analogy here uh, is human beings I believe use about 80 to 100 gallons per day every day. So if you think about it, if we can save, uh, you know, about 25% of that, that's quite substantial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, those are significant numbers in terms of water savings. And it is it is very important to think about, about water savings because as, as climate change is, is continuing, as the earth is warming, as as weather patterns are changing, it is, it is just a, an unfortunate fact that, that the way that water is being distributed around the world is going to change. And this is part of the, the idea of, of reducing, reusing, recycling here, being able to conserve those water resources that we have. So if we can produce oil and gas in a, 
in a less water intensive way than we should. So that way we get the best of both worlds. We still get the the benefits of the hydrocarbons, but we also get we get that at a lower environmental cost. Exactly. So the I'm just thinking about the the ideas that we have here with this very this more efficient mixing and utilizing momentum of the natural flow it it's hard for me to even picture that really in my mind i'm curious how how did you guys go about developing these ideas how did you how did you come up with this new idea and technology yeah yeah happy to talk about that so the concept of these high efficiency mixers was developed you know about 15 20 years ago uh, in Norway, uh, with a completely different application in mind, I think they were trying to measure the flow rate of uh, uh, fluids through uh, pipes, and they they were trying to basically create fine droplets. Uh, ever since then, the application, uh, I guess, user base or application benefits uh, uh, have been into, into different areas. And from our perspective, the last four years, we have really, I would say, have made several step changes in enhancing the design of these uh, uh, particular mixing technologies into applications that are much more relevant to today. So to, to address your question directly, how did you go about designing these? As you can imagine, it's hard to get inside a pipe and understand how these things are actually mixing, right? So... This is where simulation technologies or modeling technologies come come to the rescue, and one particular th- uh, one particular technology or application we use is broadly uh, what the industry calls CFD, which, uh, which is an acronym for computational fluid dynamics. And there are several modeling uh, software. Uh, software packages that allow you to actually visualize how fluid flow occurs inside closed pipes. And, you know, uh, know we have a a robust engineering uh, uh, bench at ProSEP where uh, everybody, you're talking about nerding out, will love to nerd out and understanding what's going on inside a pipe. So we've... uh, managed to use uh, CFD modeling to understand how uh, these fluids mix, what are the flow patterns, uh, varying the specificity of each fluid to see how the flow patterns change. And uh, that have really that has really helped us to fine tune the final design. So uh, I guess uh, to summarize, you know, we've really used uh, advanced modeling software packages to help us fine-tune our designs. And you mentioned before before talking about CFD and this the the high-end frequency modeling that you you really saw a big change in the past four years. But you've been I guess Procep has been around since 2005. So it goes back almost almost 16 years now. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm, I'm curious, how were you developing these ideas and these tools 
16 years ago compared to using CFD modeling and these high-performance computers of today? Yeah, so again, um, when these were uh, designed originally in the late 90s, early 2000s, I believe the scientists then used some modeling techniques uh, with the computing power of, uh, from those times. And I can't recall how long it took for them to complete uh, one set of modeling uh, uh, then. So I really can't comment on that. But what has happened in the last four years, as you can imagine, you know, hardware and software uh, has advanced to a certain level that you can do things that you that you would need days or weeks. Now you can do it in hours, all right? And I certainly believe uh, that has helped us run many more iterations in CFD modeling, for example, today in 20, between 2017 to 2021 when compared to maybe 1999 to 2001. Uh, so while I don't really have an exact uh, efficiency gain in terms of how much hardware advancements have helped us, we know that we've, we're fortunate now to run many more iterations of design faster than before. It's very interesting. And I, I actually had somebody on the podcast, I think it was last week's episode, XRG Technologies. They, they work in, in uh, fire heaters. Mm-hmm. And it is very similar in in this discussion in that they they're adding some type of fuel to a furnace and the mixing process and the efficiency of the burning is is remarkably similar to the idea of of I guess mixing mixing additives into into the processing stream for for upstream oil and gas and it's amazing to see these these correlations and how really the the advent of high performance computing is is making all these leaps and bounds in efficiency gains really across the entire industry and what that ultimately turns into is is by increasing our efficiency, as you guys are doing, you are lowering the the water footprint of of the processing, and you are reducing the amount of chemicals, which in turn reduces the risk and reduces the cost of of oil and gas production. And what what the other company was doing was was basically making it so that you could burn more efficiently, which would ultimately reduce the cost more and reduce the amount of carbon being put into the into the atmosphere from the process. So it's really cool to see how how high performance computing is making this so much making our industry not only cleaner but also really uh it's just making it so tech savvy almost. We would love uh, to be introduced to that company you talked about because we believe um, we have actually uh, explored the opportunity of helping uh, uh, temperature modulation with our mixers as well. Because, you know, 
when people inject steam or water into a pretty hot surface, uh, there needs to be much more uniform temperature distribution to avoid, you know, damage. And our CTO, John Sabi, has actually helped uh, simulate and, and actually complete a pilot study uh, for an application like that. But anyway, we can, we can talk about that offline. But I, I completely agree with you. I think um, the advancement in computing power has really enabled a lot of industries, including the industry we're talking about today, to speed up iterations of uh, product deployment Number one, number two, make it energy efficient and also uh, play an active role in environmental stewardship. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. Um, we're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th through 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th through 9th, once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. Uh, for this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. Now, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit because another part of the of the processing uh, the processing process that mm -hmm. you that you discussed earlier was the water treatment side mm -hmm. and and Ozorb is that the same I guess is that the same kind of technology some type of mixing of chemical or is that something something different it's different, um, and I can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, so the mixing technologies, broadly called high-efficiency mixers, are what I like to think of them as mechanical innovation, right? So you're uh, redesigning the internals of a, of a widget to take advantage of the inherent intrinsic energy of fluids. So to be broadly, I like to think of these as mechanical devices. The Ozo product is a chemical system. Essentially, the uh, the name of Ozo is attributed to a sand-like particle. It's sand that essentially is made of uh, uh, silica, silica backbone. And the main function of Ozo is when you're actually flowing water through a tank that contains ozorb. The, the water is flowing through the sand It's because it's porous through ozorb. Uh, and because of the chemical nature of this ozorb material, it selectively captures some of the contaminants and allows the clean water to flow through it. And, and the significant advantage that we have with ozorb is that not only does it capture these contaminants, but it can help remove these contaminants during a process that we call regeneration. So water with contaminants flows through this tank. And let's just say after a day, 
the the clean water is flowing through and the contaminants are now held by this this uh, ozone material and then we stop the water flow and then we use steam to basically uh, remove the contaminants from ozorb and then we reuse it so that's the beauty of ozorb uh, it doesn't need to be disposed so it can capture release and then capture so if we flow of water through it uh, continuously and the reason we think it's game changing is because this material can is so sturdy that it can last for up to 20 years uh, basically where it's doing is absorption and regeneration so anyway so that's that's uh, one of the main advantages of ozorb uh, it can reach it can be used uh, for a long time it takes a lower footprint than what's out there on the market and uh, and it doesn't cost you as much. That's really interesting. The idea of of being able to use this this cleaner. That's the the easiest way for me to think about it is that it it really is just a a, a filter to clean the water, mm-hmm. um, and you can use it for twenty years. And when I think about geothermal. And geothermal is, I mean, I guess I, I think about geothermal on a daily basis. Okay. <laughs> and for geothermal, the the average, the the goal lifespan, so the average lifespan of a geothermal power plant is always projected to be 30 years. Mm-hmm. So to me, something like, like a filter that you can use and reuse for 20, up to 20, 30 years, that is a, that is a good design for for a a clear purpose of of a long-term production process and it it just makes sense and that's making me think what is the what's the current way that people i guess that that water processing and water treatment what does it currently flow through as that kind of last stage filter yeah and how long is is its life yeah, good question. So traditionally, people use something called activated carbon. I think the industry acronym is GAC. They call it GAC. I think it's granulated activated carbon. And it's essentially you know dark soot-like material. That's, it's great because you flow water through it. It'll capture anything, right? Um, and you get clean water at the other end. The challenge with GAC or GAC is that it needs to be thrown away every month, every few months, depending on how much water you're flowing through it. As you can imagine, that takes a toll on your logistics and supply chain. Uh, while it's cheap, you just got to keep reusing it. Uh, again, like I said, the frequency that it needs to be thrown away, I think th- they can regenerate that, but it's I don't think the efficiency is that great. So essentially, you have to put a fresh batch of this carbon material uh, every few months, sometimes every few weeks, sometimes every few days. And when you're uh, in the offshore market or even onshore, you imagine the, the shipping logistics that are involved in doing that. So, so activated carbon is one thing that has been used uh, for many decades. And there is, we have some competition uh, out there uh, by a large company that uh, does similar things. Sorry, one of their products does similar things like Ozorb. However, um, we think or we've demonstrated that our backbone, which is silica for Ozorb, is significantly better than their backbone, which I think is more polymer-based. 
Um, so I believe their product needs to be replenished or cleaned every year, and it cannot be cleaned on site. You have to take it somewhere else and replenish it. So, uh, so again, to just I guess the advantage for the Ozorb is that we can regenerate it on site. It never needs to be taken off site, and it lasts for twenty years. Uh, and obviously, besides the duration and low capex and flexibility, uh, one thing we calculated is uh, conventional systems. Um, for our calculations and assumptions, uh, cause about 750 tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year, which is due to logistics and manufacturing, uh, just for logistics and disposal, let's just say. And by using Ozurob, you you lower that 750 tons per year of greenhouse gas emissions to zero, right? So, which I think is significant, and we're, we're quite proud of our product uh, uh, that it plays such a vital role in, in helping uh, lower the greenhouse gas emissions. Now that number you're giving is is kind of the the operating number, not necessarily a, a life cycle assessment. Correct. That's uh, I think that's per year. So it's 750 tons per year that we have estimated uh, a conventional system will. Well, the conventional systems logistics and disposal chain. Uh, uh, will emit over a year. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I think that's a it's a very important point to make that as we as we start looking into kind of life cycle assessment and the full the full economy of of any one product, we need to consider the the scope one, two, and three emissions of that product. And for something like water treatment, we we really need to consider the whole supply chain and how much CO2 is being emitted from whatever that that filtering mechanism is towards the end. And so that's a it's a very important number to have and to be to know and to be able to make decisions off of. Yeah, exactly. And some of our clients actually explicitly ask for that. And I believe at least one of our clients shows us uh, just because, you know, we highlight that in the very beginning of our value proposition, right? That's the Ozor part. So Ozor already helps you maintain or help preserve a very precious natural resource like water by cleaning it, right? Almost zero uh, contamination. On top of that, we can help save greenhouse gas emissions. That's the uh, that's a, a double bonus, I guess, to, to the client. And mm-hmm. I also add um, on the mixer side, we've done some calculations on how much greenhouse gas emissions we save. Um, and, and if you allow me, let me just uh, throw some numbers at you here. Uh, conventional mixing solutions, typically what happens is uh, they uh, impede the flow of the main fluid uh, and cause causing what in the industry is called a pressure drop. Now, if your pressure drop drops by a lot it helps it, it it prevents you from having more fluid grow through which is bad and it also means to maintain that same pressure you have to use more energy to push the liquid through and in that process of keeping that pressure uh, you have to use high energy so we've estimated that uh, in conventional mixing technologies, cause about 32 tons per year of greenhouse gas emissions. 
Uh, however, by using ProSeps mixers, because of the way we design internals, the pressure drop is minimal. Uh, we can lower the, the greenhouse gas emissions to eight tons per year. So we go from 32 tons per year to eight tons per year. That's about 75% decrease of greenhouse gas emissions. So Yeah, uh, that's significant. Yeah, we believe that's significant and a pretty strong value proposition for us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for adding that in because mm-hmm. that was, it is ultimately that is really what we're, what we're talking about is in the, in the current energy mix, the goal is at least it seems like the goal is to decarbonize, figure out how to produce our existing resources at a, at a lower carbon footprint a more environmentally friendly way and and then with the idea of energy transition figuring out how to how to slowly decrease that that hydrocarbon input and increase the renewable energy or the low carbon energy input one more one more question on this ozorb and and I guess the the easiest way to to ask it is just to ask it. You <laughs> you clean the 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 material with steam. Mm-hmm. Is that steam then contaminated with the with the contaminants and then needs to be trucked off or or disposed of in in some way? Yeah, good question. Um, so again, our our. Our very smart uh, engineering and product team has designed this steam system to be self-sufficient and operating in a continuous loop. So we, when we supply uh, what people you call a skid for ozone treatment, we supply a steam generation system as well, where you actually have a water that goes into it. And when steam goes through it, obviously it captures the contaminants. But now when that steam comes out, it's got a concentrated contaminant. And we have a, a thermal process that actually helps you remove that concentrated contaminant and hand it over to the client, which in some cases could be valuable uh, to sell. Uh, but if it's a waste, you have a very concentrated um, uh, uh, volume of this contaminant that can be discharged uh, any way you please. Okay. So is there... I guess with the steam side of it, is there any amount of of additional water loss in terms of that that cleaning process? No. So as far as uh, we know, you know, we've designed a self sufficient, continuously operating steam loop. So uh, we are as energy efficient and as resource efficient as we can be. Okay. Very fascinating that it is it is always fun and and intriguing to hear about these these new ideas and these new technologies that that even when you think about okay you you have to you have to essentially wash or regenerate the ozorb how are you going to do that well oftentimes that washing process would have some type of of loss in in other scenarios whereas here you guys have even worked on that to make that as clean and as efficient as possible yeah look i'm very impressed by your uh by your very sharp uh, 
I guess you, you picked these things up quite well. It's very perceptive. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. <laughs> so the, I guess the, the last question that I've got for this is as we transition from hydrocarbons to clean energy, there is going to be less of this upstream separation process. But I would assume, and I guess this is, I, I would assume that there is going to be some type of separation in the low carbon future. Have you guys started thinking about that? And, and do you see where, where separation and where water treatment, specifically with what, you, what Procep works on, where you fit in? into this this low carbon economy of the future? Yes, we have definitely, and that's a great question. I think the first thing I want to say is I am not in the business of projecting oil price or oil use for the next few years. As you can imagine, uh, that's just a very hard exercise and it's subject to too many variables. So look, I, I think there will be uh, hydrocarbon use for several decades, I don't know at what level, but right? again, um, I'm agnostic to it. I think we want to be able to help the industry be responsible and uh, at the same time supply affordable energy to the, to the, to the world. Uh, having said that, I think the transition into the industrial space, transition into renewable space is quite exciting. And we uh, have, in fact, started working on that. And a couple of areas we're looking at are uh, carbon capture, which, as you can imagine, is, is garnering, garnering a lot of attention. Uh, and then we're also looking into lithium batteries uh, as well. And I, I, we have a few things coming up that uh, right now I, they are in the proof of concept phase. Uh, we are hoping that we can convert those into pilot and actual commercial use here in the next few months and years. Um, but yeah, just a quick answer. We are very excited about the opportunities that the energy transition space offers, and we hope to be able to uh, play a key role in that in the future. That's very cool and very exciting. And as you were talking, the explaining how your different tools work and the different solutions you've made increase efficiencies, My the wheels were spinning in my head about the different potential applications in in the energy transition and in in the renewable spaces so i i won't ask any leading questions and <laughs> i will let you keep your your uh, trade secrets to yourself well we, we, yeah thank you i appreciate that we we file we are in the process of filing two patents and uh you know as you can imagine the ip council is is uh uh very careful in allowing us to, well, allowing us to say or, or not say uh, uh, anything about those until they're actually official. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I appreciate yep. you uh, 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 respecting that. I completely understand. With that, I've got a few final questions. These are a little bit different, a little bit more tangential, and a little bit more fun. Not that okay. talking about <laughs> mixing and, and Ozorb is not fun. <laughs> No, no. Go so ahead. The final question is, what's the most important book you've ever read? Oh, most important book I've ever read. Ah, you're going to make me think now. Um, yeah, look, if um, 
if I were to go back, I think maybe one of the ones that shaped my fundamental thinking uh, in life was when I was 17, when I read uh, Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. I'll just stop there. <laughs> All I know about Ayn Rand is Atlas Shrugged, because there was always that that scholarship that you could apply for by <laughs> reading the book and writing an essay. And I thought about it once and I, I went to the library at the high school and I went and found the book and I immediately decided I was not going to do it because <laughs> the book is, at the time it felt like it was 5,000 pages. I don't remember how long it was, but it might as well have been 5,000 pages because there was no way I was going to read it. But good on you for, <laughs> for reading Ayn Rand. Well, look, I mean, I was 17, very impressionable out there on my own, uh, away from home, and I was drawn towards inspirational uh, writings. And you know, I started reading it, and it was, it was quite good. And uh, it really shaped uh, at least some foundation of uh, how I think about things and uh, how I should think about the environment around me and, and what's important in life, how to prioritize things and uh, uh, what not to focus on in life as well. It was, it was quite interesting. Mm. Well, that's, that's good. And I think you've sold the book. Maybe not to me, but I'm sure somebody will now go pick it up. <laughs> I <laughs> so hope the so. Next, yes. The next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? Net zero, yeah. So that's a very interesting term, right? So um, look, short answer is I honestly do not know. Uh, and again, to be honest, again, I really do not know and also appreciate how the net zero calculations uh, or, or how the calculations work to calculate net zero. So since I really don't know how that's done, I'm not going to comment on when we'll get there. But what I can say is, look, one of my, my um, uh, goals is I want to see the world, well, one of my aspirations and one of the one aspirations for the world is that I think there needs to be progress in advancing technologies that will improve the standard of living, reduce pollution, provide access to affordable energy and healthcare. So if the net zero goals, or at least one of the goals of net zeros can help us get to those things that I talked about, then I would completely support that. And however, I don't know how that's calculated and, and uh, hence I don't know when we'll be able to get there. That's a really good point because a lot of the ideas of net zero, one of the, I guess, one of the, most interesting articles that came out during the pandemic was the amount of of CO2 reduction from our lack of activity. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear that we very we could hit the CO2 emissions targets mm -hmm. pretty easily if we all just take a, a one month siesta where we sit at home and do nothing for the entire <laughs> once a one month out of every year. Uh, and, and as you point out, standard of living, healthcare, and, and really a, a cleaner environment 
it is it is difficult in some regards to find a way to get all of those improving with the same the same solution so i think it is really important to think about as we as we as we discuss and and hit and make goals for net zero mm-hmm. it it really is a it is more than just a climate standard or an electricity standard it really needs to be something that is a larger conversation not just about the carbon footprint of the electricity we're producing but also the quality of life that we are getting from that that low carbon energy yeah it's a great point i completely agree so the last question is, what one question do you have for me? Ah, I could only ask one. <laughs> I mean, you can ask two if you want. Okay, let me make it two. One, I'll ask a professional question. One, non-professional question. Um, so uh, for, on the professional front, so given that you're in this role where you know you have the unique viewpoint of listening to companies, listening to management teams, about the energy space. Um, on the other hand, also you, I'm sure, uh, have a pulse of your audience as well. What are you hearing as the most relevant problems for both sides of the table for you, right? The t- companies and people. That is, it is complex because ultimately for for nearly every company I talk to, they are they're either very large private equity backed or they are publicly traded. And so it 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 kind of is ruled by by turning a profit. Mm. And one of those aspects for the the purely renewable energy space companies is also having the the ESG standards and a very clear, clear environmental footprint goal and reduction of of carbon in the atmosphere or of greenhouse gases. Hmm. So it's it is a the thing that I am hearing from the companies, unfortunately, is that that the profit and the profit margins are still most important. And they always, it, it, it sounds like they always will be. And I know that sounds, it sounds almost bad to, to have a, a negative viewpoint of that. But I think coming from geothermal, our profit margins, if, for lack of a better term, are on the order of 10 to 15%. Mm-hmm. Whereas profit margins for oil and gas are significantly higher mm-hmm. when, you, when you have a good well. So, so it's, it's almost like I've tampered myself to understand that you can have a, a successful business and a environmentally friendly business that still produces a profit for your shareholders or for whoever is investing in it, but it may not be the same as, as what, what, some industries expect and especially today with the advent of unicorn tech companies it 
it's very hard to have anybody compete with those. But the problem is we still need we still need food, we still need electricity, we still need those those kind of foundational inputs into life. We, we can't all drive, drive and fly yeah. too, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. We can't all make apps, unfortunately. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. I don't know if that really answered your question. No, but look, I appreciate people who have nuanced answers to complex questions, right? There's no simple answer. So I'm, I'm glad you approached it in a nuanced way. And I think I tend to agree with you. It's, it's not a simple answer. Yep. But um, I, I have noticed, and I think this gets to the side of it, of the viewership. And maybe not just my viewers, but from a from a societal standpoint, I think the reason everybody is talking about net zero is because of society and what what consumers are now asking for. So consumers are asking for companies to be more socially responsible, and that is the environmental side. That is the the social side and the governance side. So it's all of the ESG that goes into that. And and I get to talk about the energy side and the environmental side of that most on this podcast. But I think it is you can see that that writing on the wall that that consumers are now starting to hold these larger companies responsible for really for for everything they do yeah which is it is a it's an interesting time that's for sure definitely yeah what, what i tell my colleagues is it's a great time great time to be alive there's there's a lot going on and there's a lot going on that can have a lot of impact for future generations currently mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so what was the what was the personal question you were going <laughs> well, to ask? Yeah, my, my last question, maybe we'll end this on a, uh, on a fun note is what was the um, best place you've ever visited? Ooh, the best place that I've ever visited. Most fun place you ever visited. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking about this place earlier today. Okay. I, I think I'm going to be making a new background for my Zoom because uh-huh. I'm, I'm on Zoom almost every day. Mm-hmm. But it was the Askia Crater, which is in the, the northern highlands of Iceland. Uh-huh. So it's a still active volcano. And it is this huge crater. And there is a... a freshwater lake on one part but then there's this one little resurgent dome which is i I think it the resurgent dome is vt Mm -hmm. and it it's it's this almost weird opaque bluish color kind of like the the drinks from star wars that weird bluish almost milky looking looking drink Mm -hmm. and and you would think you're going into an active volcano so it's going to be warm but you get in and it it feels like like you're swimming in this this cold water and it 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 feels feels like a cold shower a cold bath but then you put your feet down and if you try and put them if you stand too hard 
your feet actually start to feel like they're burning ah. because that's how hot it is right below the surface. So it's this weird, this weird dichotomy of sitting in this really, frankly, cold water, but also feeling like your feet are on hot plates. And well, the color kind of throws you off too. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Uh, definitely, I need to add that to my uh, future destination list. Yes, you definitely need to add Iceland to your destination list. Everybody needs to go to Iceland at least once in their life. Well, I'll look forward to it. You sold me on it. All right. <laughs> well, Mahesh, thank you very much for joining me on on this podcast. Is there any any last words that you want to say? No, I think, look, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it sounds like you're talking uh, about interesting topics, and uh, I enjoyed being on here and talking about it. And like I said before, one of my professional goals is to be part of something that uh, enhances the standard of living of people, reduce pollution, uh, provide access to affordable energy and healthcare. So uh, I hope uh, uh, your audience is listening to this uh, uh, and enjoys that part and would like to be part of that. And uh, if, if you're able to inspire people to do that, I think our future will be bright. All right. Well, Thanks again for being on the show and thank you to everybody who is joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're still listening, I can only assume that you like my show. So please do me a favor, leave me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing those two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry and keep up to date with with news, connect with us at OGGN.com or connect with us on LinkedIn. And if you're in the Houston area, go check out the Canon co-working space. I work from there when I'm in Houston and it's where we host our monthly industry mixers. If you mention OGGN, you get a free day pass and then you can see what I'm talking about. Until next time, Remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.